Hush, 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 here comes the boogeyman. Don't let him come too close to you, he'll catch you if he can. Welcome to Boggart and the Banshee, a supernatural podcast. I'm Chris, the Relentlessly Informative. I study ghosts, Fortiana, fashion history, and death. And I'm Simon, Chris's worst nightmare. I study boggets, fairies, urban legends, and the impossible. This is a Boggart and Banshee public service announcement. Boggart's microphone was faulty for this episode and he is uncharacteristically quiet. We apologize for the inconvenience and hope that your enjoyment is not impaired. So I hear there's a a fairy census coming out. That's right. After all these months of preparation, we're finally there. By the time this recording goes out, fairy census will be out, both as a PDF and Excel and there's actual physical copies. What makes this different? Is this, this is the second fairy census, right? Yes, it's very much the second fairy census. So this is number 501 to 1,000. And as of now, I am collecting for fairy census three that will be 1,001 to 1,500. And remember, my aim is to get to 2,000 oh or 2,500. So a couple of decades still more to go and hours and hours before I sleep wildly ambitious yes well on the subject of fairies i couldn't help but bring in this beautiful fairy experience i chose it for three reasons first of all this fairy account has special associations for me because it was actually you at the very beginning of our friendship some 10 years ago who gave me this account and i've used it frequently in writing since And I've been very gratified to see that others, John Cruz, Michael Swords, have also picked up this account because it really is so extraordinary. Second, you and I are big fans of dark fairy lore, changelings, dead cattle. But what I really like about this account is that it lacks that, but it also lacks the dreadful tinsel and shiny lights and pink tutus of modern fairy encounters. It's charming, and yet it's not vulgar. There's no sense of threat in the account. It's just this fleeting, very strange encounter between our world and another world. And then I suppose the third point I bring up, and I hope we can talk about this later, is that of all the fairy accounts I've looked at, and certainly of the fairy accounts we've been through on this podcast, for me, this is the single most credible. It's the one where, as a skeptic, I find it most difficult to ignore. First of all, there were two witnesses. They were both young women, but two witnesses. And second, they were not children. They were in their late teens, very early 20s. And with that, Chris, perhaps we could launch into the reading. Well, I've got the reading here, and it was um, originally written in 1897 from full notes made at the time that this fellow heard the story. His name was E. Westlake, and he titled it A Traditional Hallucination, which is a bit condescending, perhaps. One evening in August, I think it was in 1888, but I'm not sure to a year, we wanted some water from the well. It was late, and Minnie, an elder sister, was afraid to go by herself, and I went with her to keep her company. It was a splendid night. The moon was overhead and one could see the sands and cliffs quite plain. 
Minnie had got down into the well, the bottom of which was dry on the near side and was bending down, dipping up the water with a cup from the back of the well, which is deeper. I was watching Minnie in the well. She had been down a minute, dipping up the water into the pitcher when I heard a squeaking like mice. I looked round, and there on the grass and about five feet in front of me were three little things like dolls, about as high as a chair seat, dancing round and round with hands joined as fast as they could go. They were covering, I should say, as much ground as a big tray. They were dressed in very thin white stuff like muslin, drawn in at the waist and thrown all over their heads like a bride's veil, so that I could not see their faces and coming down over their arms. Their arms were stretched out, rather drooping from the shoulder, and their hands were joined. They were as white as snow, hands and all. They were all alike. I didn't see any difference. They had very small waists, no larger than the neck of that jug. Their dresses swelled out at the bottom from the dancing. They were very long, and I don't think I saw their feet, but they appeared to be dancing with a movement as though they were working their legs. They did not glide around. They went round pretty fast, as fast as real people. I watched them a minute, not longer, and they went around two or three times at least, as they were going round as fast as they could. They went round in the direction of the hands of a watch, and as gently as possible, with no sound of footsteps or rustling of dresses, but the squeaking noise kept up all the time. It was too pretty a sound for mice, and louder, quite loud. One could have heard it, I should think, at a little distance. Minnie, in the well, said, Oh, what's that? What's that? She told me afterwards she had heard the same noise as I had, and I said, look, look. And then, as if they were frightened, they all ran together as quick as lightning up against the rock and were out of sight in a moment. I was that frightened and was as white as a ghost when I came in. We looked at the clock, and it was twelve. I have never been there before or since at that time of night. Mr. Weber, a German, was in the house, and a Mr. Carter, who told me they were pixies, fairies, you know, I had never heard or read of any such things before. Mother has since said that things were seen there at the well in times gone by. But I did not know of that then. Isn't it fantastic? It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, just such a vivid picture. I'm a little skeptical that she had never heard of such things. She's a girl in Cornwall, for heaven's sake. She must have heard of pixies. But otherwise, it's, it's just an amazing, lovely account. And not only is she in Cornwall, she's in one of the most rural parts of Cornwall. Sending Cove is right at Land's End in the far west. It's very rough land. It's the kind of place that you would expect traditions to survive longer than elsewhere. So quite what we make of her saying that she'd never heard of pixies before, I'm not sure. It is true that in the west of Cornwall, pixie actually means a solitary supernatural being. But even so, I find that a little bit strange. One thing that struck me about it was the clothing. You know, I'm always looking at fairy fashions, and all I could think of was Vestal Virgins, the Roman white tunic and, and veil, which I suppose would go along with the idea that sometimes uh, Roman sites are, are associated with the fairies. Because we have lots of descriptions of dancing from Britain, and I'm sure we can talk about some of these in a minute or two. But there's something about this that is rather unusual in that respect. Three fairies doing a circle dance is not many. Usually when you have descriptions of fairies dancing, there are several more. Right. And then, like you say, the clothes, there's something rather unusual about the clothes. 
it's true that at least they're dressed the same. And this comes back to my old fairy rule, uniform, but not in uniform. So very similar clothes, but they're not clothes that I've come across in other contexts in Britain. Uh, yeah, the costuming, they're almost like a ghost that you would perhaps see in a spiritualist photo, one of the uh, spirit photos of the time, veiled in, in white. And yet for me, there is one exciting thing about the dancing, that we're lucky that for Senan Cove, we have a number of folklore writers who describe life there and supernatural beliefs. And one of these is our old friend, Walter Evans Wentz, the American who travelled across Western Britain and much of Ireland looking for fairy accounts. And several years after this was published, he went to Senan Cove not knowing about this account. And he ended up talking to a man in his late 70s there. And the man said that there is a place on the hill above Senan Cove where there is a fairy ring. And that is where the fairies dance. Now, Senan Cove is right on the coast and there's a steep hill that rises up above it. And the spring that we read about in the account was on that hill. Ah. So it's almost as if we have two different authors with different perspectives describing something similar, one on the basis of experiences and the other a more general account that, yes, up there on the hill, there's a place where the fairies dance. And remember that Grace's mom says it was known in previous times that the fairies danced there. So there's this rather nice coincidence. We can't be sure it's the same place, but we might suspect that it is. Right. And I'm wondering which came first, the fairy rings or the idea that fairies dance in rings? Because that's the cliche, is they dance in a ring. Um, so it's it's almost kind of... Did people see these rings and say, oh, yes, these were trampled down by the fairies or these were where their fairy feet hit? Here's the mushrooms that sprang up. Or did they actually see fairies dancing and then come back and find the ring? But it is such a ubiquitous theme. It, it even appears in a fairy abduction case from Iowa that I wrote about in the uh, chapter in Magical Folk. A young lady was walking through the woods with her father and called his attention to a large number of finely dressed people dancing to music and enjoying themselves very much. And he couldn't see the dancers. And uh, she told her sister when she got home that the fairies would carry her off soon. I mean, Chris, if you're not safe in Iowa, where, where in God's name are you safe? <laughs> exactly. And that's another theme is that these, these places where they're seen dancing, this fellow says, I was born and bred where there was tradition that the, and please don't shoot me for not pronouncing this correctly, Twilithteg, uh, lived in holes in the hills. And it was a common idea that forming in a ring, they would dance and sing on the mountainsides or on the plain. And if children should meet with them at such a time, they would lose their way and never get out of the ring. I mean, that's another theme of these dances is that mortals join in them and they can never escape. That's right. Or if they do escape, they fall to dust the minute they come back into mortal society. Or, or they leave the ring with their feet bleeding. They've been yes. dancing so long. There's toes torn off, worn to the nub by dancing. Many years ago, Jeremy Hart, in that wonderful book, Explore Fairy Traditions, yes. has a great line where he says, two things you must never do. 
eat fairy food or dance with the fairies? Chris, as to your question about what came first, the mushrooms or the dance, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say the dance. The reason I would say this is because when you travel eastward through Europe, the traditions of fairies dancing or the equivalents of fairies dancing, but also dancing in rings is constant. It's something that we find here at the extreme west of Europe on the very tip of the Cornish Peninsula. But also if you travel into the Slavic lands in the east, yes. um, there are the various usually all-female societies that take great joy in dancing. And yet in the far east of Europe, there isn't this tradition linking the fairies with mushrooms. So my guess would be that this is something that in prehistory was there as a mythological idea. Maybe it was an even an idea, this is a fairies dancing, going back to the Indo-Europeans, and it latched on to this motif of mushroom rings in lands where these kind of fungi were very common. But I think dancing predates it. And this brings us to a difficult question. Surely the dancing means something. Why? Of all the activities we see fairies do, we see them make butter. We see them go to battle. We see them go hunting. We see them play music. We see them have markets. But of all the things they do, the most common is dancing. And when they dance, the most common dance is the circle dance. It seems to be hardwired into our mythology. Why? Oh, yes. If I could answer that question, um, I wish I could. A couple of things. And I'm not sure whether we can conflate spinning dances where an individual spins around with the ring dances, but those seem to have some sort of almost psychedelic qualities. They take the dancer into a different world. But surely that's true of a round dance as well, isn't it? Very possibly, yeah. I mean, even if there were five or six of you in a circle and you're going around and around, we, we've we all uh, had that experience, that experience of lightheadedness that goes with that. Right. I'm thinking of a Bronze Age burial, the Egtvid, and I I'm, hope I'm not mis- mispronouncing that girl. She was buried wearing a cord skirt. And it is believed that that was worn to spin around and stand out as she was spinning, as she danced. Um, The people who reconstructed the skirt said it was irresistible. You couldn't put this on and not just start spinning and dancing. So it goes back a long way. I think the actual earliest date of a ring dance is the 7th century in Europe. I think of the carols which we think of singing Christmas songs, but it was actually dancing in a ring or a circle while you sang. And of course, we've got that wonderful story from Robert Manning, Handling Sin, about the dancers of Kolbeck, who were cursed by the priest for dancing around the church at Christmas and are condemned to dance for a whole year. And then, of course, they all die. But uh, the circle dances seem to be associated with a certain amount of fertility or lust. It was, it was decried by the church. We've got the Merry Maidens in Cornwall, the stone circle of dancers turned to stone for dancing on a Sunday. And uh, Jacques de Vitry, uh, the French theologian, said, the dance is a circle whose center is the devil, and in it all turn to the left because all are heading towards everlasting death. When foot is pressed to foot or the hand of the woman is touched by the hand of man, 
there the fire of the devil is kindled. So there's a certain illegitimacy to this kind of a dance. It was always condemned by the church. And so I'm wondering where that fits in with with the fairies because they're they're not part of our society or the the mortal society i would just have two tiny things to add to that one going up and one going down i'll start with the up there is a fascinating welsh account of a group of fairies spinning in a circle and then slowly taking to the sky and disappearing into the heavens, almost as if this ability to go round and round in a circle allows you to take off, take Mm. off into space. And then the other side, of course, there are lots and lots of circle dances in children's law, children's folk. Many of these circle dances end, and I can still remember the joy of this from when I was a child, with the collapse, everyone falling into a heap on the floor. Hmm. And, I remember the rhyme, but we didn't we didn't fall down. I don't know why. <laughs> you, you North Americans, you're you're my, but seriously, at the end you have the line and all fall down. Mm-hmm. But but you you guys stayed on your feet. We stayed on our feet. Yep, no fun. So dancing is going to remain a mystery, but it is fascinating for me that these girls who claim to have no knowledge of the pixies or the fairies see such an iconic fairy scene. Would you comment on that? Or again, are we being skeptical about their ignorance? Are we assuming that perhaps they knew a little bit more than they said or than that they thought? I wonder if it was more not wanting to admit to an outsider Although she told the whole story and and she was obviously shocked by the appearance of these little creatures. So I'm I'm really kind of puzzled by that. Or did the man who was interviewing her misunderstand? Maybe he just misunderstood that bit. When I read it, I was also a little bit confused because she says, pixies, comma, fairies, things I didn't know about. And I wasn't sure if that was her saying she'd never heard of pixies or she'd never heard of pixies or fairies. Hmm. So already there's a little bit of ambiguity there. Right, right. It it is worth saying, though, as well, just to give credibility to this account, we have two young women here, and I went back and checked the censuses, and the younger girl who gives the account, Grace, when this took place, was 16 or 17, if the census records are reliable. And her elder sister, Minnie, who was the one that was scared um, and who didn't want to go out alone, uh, something that she was 20. And I couldn't help laughing when I looked at the census that by the time she was in her mid-20s, she was the local school teacher. Ah, and in so many 19th century accounts, we have the idea that the school teacher kills fairies because it's the school teacher who will introduce these poor, ignorant yokels, <laughs> as, as the Victorians saw it, to the, to the Enlightenment and reason thought and the Church of England and the proper supernatural. And yet in this case, this girl who has this extraordinary experience is the one who's actually going to end up teaching the little Senan Covers of the future. And I wonder if she read fairy stories to them. Another long-standing interest of mine is wells and fairies, springs of water and fairies. There often seems to be a relationship between where fairies are seen and where you have springs. And I'll talk a little bit more about this, but it's fascinating that the fairies are not quite dancing at the spring in the sense that 
Minnie seems to be bending down to get the water. Grace is standing a little way off with her back to the spring. And when she notices these extraordinary beings, and this is part of what I, I just find very difficult imagining what this looks like. I think she says they're about five feet away. Is that right? That's right. Yep. Five feet in front of me on the grass. And there's this beautiful sense that she's not aware of them, but also they don't seem to be aware of her. Well, they did become aware, though, at the end. But they become aware when the two girls notice them. It's almost that classic idea that here we are, no one can see us. And then suddenly, oh, my goodness, we're being observed. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This is something that's still very common in modern fairy accounts. When you have people who say, I saw this being in the wood and I suddenly saw by its eyes that it realized it was being observed. Yes. We also have accounts like this from the, the Woolerton Gnomes, some of the associated accounts. I think two of them have this. So here we have something that has a long history and that continues to the present. The idea that fairies, however we describe or explain fairies, in some senses seem to feel that they're camouflaged, that they're not observable. And when they're noticed, they get a little bit of a shock. And as here, the dancing stops and the fairies run, apparently, into a rock face. Yeah, it's, it's, I remember reading a bunch of stories in the fairy census, both one and two, about this, where a child is maybe observing a fairy and all of a sudden the fairy notices them watching them and poof, they're gone. So, yeah, it's a, another very, very common theme. Another thing, just in terms of what we're seeing here through Grace's eyes, that, that struck me. How do you explain this? The fairies are five feet away. They're running around in a circle, perhaps distracted in their own little world, though Grace doesn't see them as she's approaching. She sees them as she's standing there. And one detail that really caught my attention was she could see their clothes. She explained, she described the clothes, I thought, in very impressive detail. It's this strange business that they're holding hands, but she couldn't make out the fingers. Does this just come down to the fact that they're holding hands and they're moving quickly? Well, I just wondered, are we seeing the vagueness that you sometimes get in supernatural encounters in the same way that if you're in a dream and you're reading a book and you concentrate hard to read the letters, you usually can't? I would have just thought that they were moving very quickly. And that's another theme in fairy lore about the dancing is how quickly they move. Remember, we did the episode on the elves of Kaikalad? Yes, our first episode, Chris. And they were moving very vigorously, faster than humanly possible almost. Yeah, there's almost a sense of a blur. Yeah. I mean, going back to my point about the well, I'm fascinated by fairy wells because in the British countryside and Cornwall and Wales seem to operate by the same rules here. There are lots of place names that are named for the fairies. There are, for instance, fairy holes, which are usually the homes of fairies. There are fairy pans or fairy kettles. There are fairy hills, lots of different place names. And practically all of these place names are to be found in the wilds away from human settlements. This is something that is consistently there. You don't find a fairy hole within half a mile of a village, say. 
the fairies, unlike other types of supernatural beings, are associated with what passes in Britain for wilderness. They're up on the mountainside. They're on the scree slope. They're up on the moors. However, there is a very important exception to this. Fairy wells and fairy springs are always next to villages. It's almost as if the fairy village is up on the hill, the human village is down in the valley, and halfway between them, in a sort of a shared area, there's a spring that both humans and fairies use. Hmm. I've not seen anyone do a proper study of this, but this example from Senan seems to really fit into this pattern. These fairies are not dancing in the well. They're dancing next to the well. But when they escape, they run into the wall of the well. It, it seems to be particularly associated with them. Oh, Why would it be that we have fairies so closely associated with springs? And why are these springs usually next to or very close to human habitations? You know, I didn't read that as running into the rock of the well. I, I read that as running into the rock of the cliffs or the surrounding terrain, because she says we could see the sands and cliffs quite plain. My understanding was that the well was actually a drip that was coming down off these big rocks. Oh, okay. All right. And the fairies, they don't say that they vanish into the rock, but they run at the rock and then vanish. Yeah. I was reminded of the Ilkley fairies, where the yes. fairies are described as running up the wall and over the top. Oh. But here it's as if they just vanish. And Ilkley is another example of the well... Yes, it is. Halfway between the moor and the village. It's a fascinating pattern. Huh. I think that if you want to understand fairy lore, in the end, you've got to understand this umbilical between the fairy world on the one hand and humanity on the other. And these wells for me are at the very centre of this umbilical. It's just one of these points where the human and the fairy world meet. Now, I have a question. How often do holy wells and fairy wells overlap, or do they? Are they always entirely separate items, or do you have a fairy well that has taken the place, the name has taken the place of a, a saint's well, a holy well? I don't think I have enough data to answer that as satisfactorily or as determinedly as I talked about the position of fairy wells. What I can say is that there are certainly saints' wells up and down Britain that are associated with fairies. And my guess, if anything, but here I'm running on instinct and, and perhaps rather inadequate instincts, my guess would be that, if anything, the fairy well gave way to the saints' well. In other words, these were wells that originally were associated with what Francis Young calls godlings, a local mm -hmm. deity. Then. In polite society, it became St. Wilfred's Well or St. Ella's Well right. or something along these lines. That, that would be my guess. But Chris, who's to say? Again, going back to the Romans for some reason, were these fairy wells, as you say, associated with godlings? Were they associated with earlier people's gods or the Roman gods? I've heard things like, you know, fairies were just Roman water nymphs repurposed. One thing that struck me thinking about Roman nymphs repurposed is that I mentioned a minute ago Francis Young. I also had the real privilege last week of reading Jeremy Hart's 
new book on medieval fairies in manuscript. Ah. And both Francis and Jeremy note the way that frequently in the Middle Ages, there are encounters between three supernatural beings, normally all female and humans. And very often the encounter boils down to two of the beings as a kind of a chorus in the background and one of them being more active. And I wondered whether this strange encounter here, the very end of fairy folklore or prior folklore in Cornwall, and I wondered if two centuries later, what was this rather neat little dance would have actually turned into a full-blown encounter between the two girls and these three beings. But in the same way as we see shape changes disappear in, in the late Victorian period and become these rather monotone, boring, slightly shape-shifting dogs, in the same way maybe we're seeing the British fairies becoming rather more modest in what they do in encounters. And so there's this rather beautiful but tame encounter between these two girls and these three beings. Hmm. That's interesting, the, the idea that somehow the supernatural beings sort of begin to wear out, their powers dissipate. I imagine that we would see this from different points of view, but you've had that great phrase you've used before, forgive me if I get this wrong, but that ghosts have a sell-by date. Is that right? <laughs> statute of limitations. Ghosts have a statute of limitations, yeah. yes. Now, I'm climbing into your head here, which might not be a, a polite or wise thing to do. <laughs> but my, my guess is that you really do see this in terms of an energy that ends. Whereas for me, my suspicion is it just has a lot more to do with what people are capable of experiencing. In other words, it's not strictly a supernatural experience as most people mean it. It's the inability of people to have experiences that their great-grandparents ah. were able to have. Mm -hmm. With shape changes, I, I just think people stop being able to imagine sheep becoming fire, becoming headless bears. It just ended. And I think in the same way we may be seeing in some of our late 19th century and early 20th century accounts, the end of a fairy energy, not necessarily within the fairies, because who knows if there are fairies, but within the people who are seeing them. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. I think it's a lot more fun to to think of the actual creatures as having a statute of limitations and sort of running out of energy, but uh, I can accept your theory. I know that other times we've talked about fairies, one subject that's come up, which begs to be addressed here, and that's the language that fairies speak in. Because we, or perhaps I should say the voice with which they speak, because maybe that comes closer to what's happening here. Well, yeah, nobody's actually speaking. Um, they're just squeaking. I was tempted to trot out your, that's very human-centric line from a couple of episodes ago. <laughs> I mean, for all we know, this squeaking may have been their equivalent of the Iliad or... Well, yeah, that's true. They could have been singing and human ears simply aren't set up to grasp the high-pitched uh, frequency, as it were. We had one of our friends on Facebook who made what I thought was an inspired suggestion because there are several accounts where fairies are shown to be squeaking. And she said, maybe it really is that they're just 
in a different time that when we ever have these moments where humans cross to the fairy world and vice versa, time seems to be out of sync between the two worlds. And maybe in the same way, when the worlds collide here, they're just going a little bit too fast. We're back to the blur of their dancing. Yes. So maybe in the same way, on my WhatsApp on the computer, I can listen to a very slow friend I have speak at double speed just so I can get through his 30-minute message in 15 minutes. And maybe something like that is happening here. Hmm. The fairies are, are there at double speed or speed and a half. The thing is that this sort of high-pitched squeaking or even high-pitched voices seems to cross over into a lot of different supernatural experiences. For example, some uh, Marian apparitions. And again, I, I may be mispronouncing this, Our Lady of Borang uh, in Belgium in 1932-33. The children who were seeing the Virgin, their voices became significantly louder and higher pitched as if they were in tune with the frequency of Mary, as it were. There was another woman in Ecuador, uh, a woman named Pachi Talbot, 1988-1990. Her voice became higher pitched and more delicate, sweet to the ears, they said. So there's a certain amount of overlap with this sort of high-pitched voice or squeaking that we, we find in, in fairy stories. Could we go as far as to find it in UFO stories, aliens, Sasquatch? Is there any, you talked about different parts of the supernatural, ghosts. Is there an ancient reference to ghosts squeaking? Squeaking, that- gibbering and squeaking in the streets, supposedly. Uh, I mean, that that's Shakespeare, but apparently the Romans believed that they spoke in squeaky voices. Um, You also have... I mean, I I can think of two explanations that I'll nervously run by you. The first is that I've come across a number of recordings of mediums speaking with other voices Mm -hmm. where the medium becomes very high-pitched. Yes. And I wonder, and this perhaps relates specifically to your Marian encounter where the children are speaking as Mary... I wonder if that's just not something humans do when they're imitating in, in a very natural way, or perhaps I should say a bad imitation, that we just immediately pitch up our voice. It's difficult to say with, with spiritualist mediums, because were they actually in a trance and not conscious of what they were doing, or were they deliberately pitching their voice high and lisping like their little girl spirit yeah. guide. Yes, yes. Uh, so that that's a really, a, that's more of a difficult thing to say. I mean, I, you, can, you could accuse the children in Marian encounters of that, I suppose, as well. But in general, what I, all I can say is that the theme is there of the, of the higher pitch. What, what about, as another possibility, it's just that we've got, at least in the case of fairies, We've got small beings, and maybe for us, it's a way when we're articulating a supernatural experience to say, yes, but these are small, so naturally they squeak because smaller beings, smaller larynxes. Yeah, they've got tiny larynxes. They can't speak that loud. There were at least one or two instances in the fairy census where someone saw something flittering around 
and then heard this squeaking and said, this is a fairy. But there's insects. Apparently the sphinx atropos moth, I think that's the death head moth, emits a stridulous sound, something like the squeaking of a mouse. It's also been said to sound like the squeaking of a bat. So you've got flying things that squeak, perhaps misseen, misapprehended. Chris, can we come now to another point? So when I think of all the fairy encounters we've described together, obviously from my point of view, they're all fascinating. I think of the Ilkley Bath fairies. I think of those poor children in the Welsh field. I think of the Woolerton gnomes. And yet of all the encounters we've been through, this is perhaps the one that as a skeptic, I personally would find most difficult to explain away. We have two young adults, not children, young adults, and they are together and their experiences aren't identical. And it's a great pity we don't have an account of both girls, right? both of these young women, but they overlap from what we can see. Mick, if I was to force you into the skeptic camp for a minute, how on earth would you start to unpick this encounter? How on earth would you make it go away? Well, I suppose you could say she was hallucinating. There were animals, perhaps cats circling, you know, running in circles and and just sort of fooling around as as animals sometimes do. Uh, We see squirrels chasing each other in, in in a circle around here. So you could possibly explain it away by saying it was some local wildlife and they simply misunderstood or missaw. It is night, although they said the moon was up and it was it, everything was pretty bright. It's it is it's difficult to say, you know, she says dolls, chair height, very descriptive of the clothing. I I wouldn't know what to how to debunk it completely. Again, how dark it really was, we'll never know. But but that that's that's interesting. No, it's a theory. It it you know, I don't want to take away anything from anyone who's who's had an experience that they firmly believe in. Um we we do know that it's difficult to see things consistently, you know, eyewitness accounts have, have been easily debunked, even though people would swear that they saw what they saw. Just because they're older, you're more inclined to say it it could have been real? Well, to be honest, I'm always a little bit anxious about saying any supernatural experience is real, but these are just my (laughs) hang-ups. However, I have been struck with the fairy censuses and looking at literally hundreds of these experiences that I think children just live in a separate world in terms of supernatural experiences. And I'm not questioning at all the honesty of children, but I think that they just process the world in a much more plastic way. Mm. And so in that sense, if we had an eight and a 12-year-old girl here, I would be a little bit more chary, not least because I think that just the act of speaking to each other over some chance sensations could with time be built up into something something that was sincerely believed, I find that much more difficult to consider possible with adults. I'm not saying it couldn't happen, but the fact that there are two witnesses here Mm -hmm. um, impresses me. I do wish that our friend Mr. Metley had sat down with Minnie as well and talked to her separately. 
because in the census of hallucination that was published in the same journal, of course, they were very good at talking and writing to different people who'd had the same yes. experience yes. or who would witness parts of it. And unfortunately, in fairy encounters, this is what we're lacking here. But I, I do find it so charming as an encounter because to use that phrase from the beginning, it's a traditional hallucination in the sense that this is something that seems to come out of Cornish traditional law and yet, on the other side, this takes place on the edge of an artist colony. And for someone who knows British fairy law well, there are some little hints in the account that are rather unusual. You talk, for example, about these very white clothes. I talked about the fact that there were only three fairies. It's, it's a beautiful account and nothing will ever change that. But... I wonder if it's quite as traditional as Metlake, the man who wrote it down, thought. And that isn't to say it's not valid, it's not real. I'm not attacking it from that point of view. I just wonder how traditional it is. And how much did he know about local traditions? Or did he just pop in for the, you know, the summer holiday and, and suddenly be able to take this, this account down? This, I think, leads us usefully on to further reading. I just want to say that as part of this project, I gathered together all of the Senan accounts of folklore I could find. We'll be publishing on our Facebook page the entire account. So there's absolutely no reason to buy this pamphlet just for the account. But it's called Magicians, Redheads and Small People, The Folklore of Senan and Senan Cove. It's available as a Puka publication online. And there you'll be able to read a lot more of the surviving stories that crop up in this corner of Cornwall. And again, it's a very special place and a very special time because this is a highly traditional society where you clearly have families who have lived there for generations. But at the end of the 19th century, they come into contact with all these tourists and these semi-permanent tourists, artists and writers who settle there, who begin to record the traditions. So in a sense, it's a perfect place to pick up 19th century folklore. But of course, there's no better way to destroy 19th century folklore than put a group of artists uh, <laughs> in a Cornish village. And, and I, I wonder if we're not seeing part of that already in this account that mm. has a slight, perhaps spiritualist feel, theosophic feel to it. I'm not sure. Chris, we also talked about fairies and wells. We also talked about fairies and dancing. We talked about fairies and language. Can you think of any other books that we should add? If we're talking about sound, um, there's a book called Paracoustics, Sound and the Paranormal, which is edited by Stephen T. Parsons and Callum E. Cooper. Uh, and this covers all kinds of sounds in the psychology of sound and its association with the paranormal. So uh, that, that might have something that would be useful. One other book I can add, though it doesn't have quite the beautiful cachet of that title. This is a book by Elizabeth Whalen Barber, and it's called The Dancing Goddesses. Yes, 
she's the one that re- reconstructed this string skirt for the Bronze Age girl. I mean, she's an expert yes. on the folklore and archaeology of Eastern Europe. And I often hear whispers that her theories are a little bit crazy, but she is the one person who has had the guts to actually try and write a book explaining why supernatural beings dance in circles. And I think if for no other reason, she deserves respect for that. And she's also brought an incredible number of sources together from Slavic, from Romanian, from Hungarian, from many, many different European sources, particularly from Eastern Europe. So that's a book that I could recommend and that I found very provoking when I read it. But of course, provoking is is one of the best things that can happen to you <laughs> as a reader, I think. Yes, I, I would I would definitely recommend her work. Uh, she she's one of the earlier people that um actually started weaving antique archaeological textiles on on looms patterned after historic looms and it's experimental archaeology or experiential archaeology i'm not sure which which they call it now but i'm very impressed with her work and so with that little shelf of books can we now move on to our final reading and say goodbye to the fairies of senin cove what what have you got for us chris to wrap up with well, I have, I think, what you mentioned a little bit earlier about some other dancing fairies and uh, some other squeaking sounds. So, one day, a large drove of black cattle came down out of Cardiganshire on their way to England. My father gave them pasture for the night, and my brothers and I were set to see that they did not break through into the grain. One large and crafty ox gave us a great deal of trouble. We had just returned from driving him back when my eldest brother exclaimed, What is that blue light below on the flat? We hurried down on the flat and soon heard the sweetest music in the world. When we were within 30 or 40 yards of the light, we saw a number of small people, like children, about two feet high, dancing in a circle, hand in hand, their legs moving so swiftly that we could hardly see them. They were dressed like girls, little gray dresses with white girdles, and as they danced, they made a funny squeaking noise like little pigs when they are sucking. As we watched, the light seemed to gradually rise up into the air, and the little people went up with it, still dancing, higher and higher, until at last the music got faint, and they all vanished out of sight and hearing. Next morning, when we went to look at the place in the meadow where we had seen this sight, We find a ring in the grass, as green as the very leek. You've been listening to Bogger and Banshee, a supernatural podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please leave a review, as it helps other people find us. Those cursed algorithms.